Chapter 1 One fine September morning in 1939, my mother and I, and I think my sister Angela, were listening to the radio when the words of Neville Chamberlain came through to tell us that we were now at war with Germany. The news didn't come as any surprise. In some ways it was a relief to know that at last we were going to do something to challenge the dreadful Nazi regime that we saw as the most evil thing the world had ever known. At that time, we'd already heard of the Nazi treatment of the Jews and of their concentration camps. The German people had also heard about it, but refused to believe, or at least pretended not to believe, that it was happening. Hitler's ideas of creating a greater Germany by invasion had already become self-evident. That same day, I went down to the recruiting office in Hazelmere and signed on as a gunner in the Royal Artillery. I received a day's pay, not quite the king's shilling, but, if I remember, about two shillings and sixpence. I chose the artillery because my brother Philip had been in the artillery territorials, and I always tried to do whatever Philip had done. I expected to be called up in a few days' time to go and do my bit across the channel. I was, in those days, quite ignorant of the inscrutable workings of the military mind, from the day I was enrolled in the Royal Artillery in September 1939 to the present time, I never heard another word from them. Perhaps in some obscure, long-forgotten file in the war office, you'll find Gunner Yucca, missing, presumed deserter. The early months of the war were spent in Hazelmere, fixing blackout screens on all the windows and putting adhesive tape across the glass. We also arranged an air raid shelter in the wine cellar and put in some form of heating. One of the results of this was that at the end of the war, we inherited a large stock of rather expensive vinegar. Our life in Hazelmere was considerably enlivened when we took in four or five evacuee children from the East End of London. They were a really charming bunch, very bright and extremely noisy. When they asked, what should we call you, mister? I said, call me Uncle Adrian. And after that, we got on very well indeed. The brightest and youngest was Bernie. One day, Bernie asked, Is Auntie June your tart? And as I understood the language, I told him that she was. And of course, she still is. After the summer vac of 1940, I went back to Cambridge expecting to be called up any day. But as months went by and final exams got nearer, I began to worry. Studying for my finals had not been top of my agenda for some time. When news came round that the army wanted to recruit a ski unit to go to Finland, I jumped at the chance. For some reason they wanted to form a survey unit that could ski, and as my maths was reasonably good and I could ski, I thought I had a chance of being accepted. The war office called me to an interview in London and I went, hoping to convince them that I had a working knowledge of spherical trigonometry, which I had, and that I was an expert skier, which I was not. I was still ignorant of the workings of the military mind and was surprised that what the interviewers were trying to find out was whether or not I was socially acceptable as officer material. Apparently I did pass the test and, as I was by now beginning to understand the way things happen in the army, I was not unduly surprised to find that, having volunteered to join a ski unit, I should be posted to North Africa. My daughters pointed out to me that the words socially acceptable and officer material would not only be considered politically incorrect, but 
are almost impossible to understand in today's world, so I'll try and explain what those words meant in 1939. In the pre-war services, it was presumed without question that an officer was a gentleman. This didn't mean that every gentleman would qualify to be an officer, but on the other hand, it would be difficult for someone who didn't appear to be a gentleman to be considered as officer material, particularly in the smarter infantry regiments and, for example, in the 11th Hussars. The RAF, the Tank Corps and the Royal Engineers were more democratic in this respect, but the Royal Navy was not. This attitude of the military selection boards was not quite as silly as it sounds today. Boys like myself who had been to public school would nearly all have spent five years in the school officer training corps, learning the basic skills to become an officer. For example, I had, since the age of 12, been learning to drill with and to fire the Lee-Enfield rifle that had been used in the 1914-18 war. By the age of 13, I'd qualified as a first-class shot, as had many of my contemporaries. To qualify for a commission in the smarter cavalry regiments, one had to show a decent standard of horsemanship. Since most farms had become mechanised, the only boys who could ride a horse had fathers who could afford to send them to riding school. The fact that horsemanship was a one-time prerequisite of a commission in the 11th Hussars, the Cherry Pickers, who set so much of the tone in the 7th Armoured Division, might today seem odd, since that regiment went to war in armoured cars. As I've said already, the military mind worked on a different wavelength from that of civilians. Uh, but it must be said that the system seemed to work. However, before that happened, we have the moment when nothing stood between this green and pleasant land and the might of the Third Reich, but Sapper Yucca and five rounds of ammunition helped by a few friends. The story of the Battle of Portsdown Ridge won't be found in any of the history books, so I'll tell it now before it's forgotten forever. Like so many dramatic moments in my life, it caught me with my pants down, literally. I was on the loo in Fort Widley, one of the large fortresses at Portsdown built to keep out Napoleon, when the alarm sounded to tell us that the German invasion had started. Although Fort Widley was a fortress of most impressive impregnability, some military genius had decided that we should abandon the fort and defend England from small slit trenches dug into the limestone of Portsdown Ridge, from which position we would drive off the German panzer divisions with rifle and bayonet. Someone had overlooked the fact that as the ridge curved gently in a downward slope, the approaching enemy would be completely hidden from sight until about 50 yards away. I forgot to mention that we were also armed with a most ingenious hand grenade made from empty food cans containing a stick of gelignite, a detonator, a ten-second fuse and a handful of assorted scrap iron. The only effective way of lighting the fuse on a windy night was with a lighted cigarette. Thus, armed to the teeth, we waited all night. The night passed without excitement for me, but one of my brave comrades had his moment of glory. In the small hours of the morning, a head appeared advancing over the curved ridge. Halt! Who goes there? he called. There was no answer, so he called again, as required by our orders. Still no answer, so he fired one of his precious five rounds of ammunition, and the head dropped from sight. In the morning, after the all-clear was sounded, he discovered that he'd shot a cow, clean through the forehead. 
That cow was the only casualty of the Battle of Portsdown Ridge. We never found out why the alarm was sounded because the invasion never happened, that night or any other. Many years later I spoke to a gunner officer who was also at Fort Whitley, and he tells me that the artillery had only five rounds of ammunition per gun. It seems that at that time the defenders of this sceptered isle were no better equipped than Dad's army. Thank God for the Royal Air Force and the Royal Navy. I had embarkation leave, and June and I decided to have a night out in London. That was the night we couldn't get a table at the Café de Paris. In spite of the heavy air raids, London was packed with people in pubs and restaurants. By today's standards, everything was absurdly cheap. Dinner at the Café Royale cost five shillings, and a bottle of Algerian red, almost the only wine available, was about two and six a bottle or less. We had dinner at Gennaro's in Soho, and every time a bomb dropped, we looked at the mirrors all round the restaurant. That night, we had a room on the fifth floor of the Regent's Palace Hotel, which had a reputation for naughty goings-on. We didn't get much sleep that night because air raids went on most of the night. In the morning, we learned that the Café de Paris, where we had tried to get a table, had been bombed, killing everyone on the dance floor, including Snake Hips Johnson and his famous band. Nine months later, Frankie was born. <laughs> 